one thing I learned is if you go through something so painful, if you can turn it into something beautiful, then it's a good, it's at least makes the pain and the challenge so worth it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We appreciate your loyalty. And if you're new, welcome. Each week, we work here to demystify success. I know it's a weird word, doesn't mean everything to everyone, but the idea is happiness in the work that you do in your life. And we go about finding that by speaking to the world's most influential women across all different industries. And the conversations go beyond the resume. From decision-making to trade-offs to those pivotal moments that shape your careers and your lives. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. No Limits, we have an awesome guest with us today. She is an entrepreneur, investor, and a philanthropist who's the founder and chair mom, which I want to get into. You're the first chair mom we've had with us, of the board of Happy Family Organics. It's the largest and fastest growing organic baby food brand in the U.S. Clearly something I'm thinking about now with my daughter, and I know a lot of people, whether they're moms or in the business They're interested in this category. It's also a certified B Corporation, which means that the company meets the highest standards of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose, something I know a lot of businesses are pursuing now. She founded the company with a mission to change the trajectory of children's health through nutrition. And in 2014, she opened the Happy Family Children's Village. It provides education and nutrition to Tanzania and children separated from their families. This was in memory of her father. And she has just started a new chapter, which we're also going to get into. But I want to welcome to No Limits, Shazi Visram. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's so awesome to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to have you here with us. It's a long time in the making. Um, And I look at your story. I mean, obviously, you have a connection to Tanzania because of your father. You grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, <laughs> yep. of all places. Yep. How did you end up in Birmingham, Alabama? Well, it's a good story. So my, my mom was from Pakistan and my dad was from Tanzania and they had an arranged marriage in Pakistan. And they then moved to England where my brother was born. And when he was three, they moved to Canada, which is where I was born. And they fell in love with Americans. And they realized they just wanted so desperately to live in America. And um, they, had, they had started this little shop, and when Americans would come in, they would just get so excited. And my dad had a friend from his village in Tanzania, Dodoma, from like 30 years before, who had come to America and started this small um, little business-growing motels um, in the southeast. And so I remember we drove down from Toronto to Orlando, and this guy sold my parents, who had nothing no knowledge of the hotel, motel, you know, hospitality industry, a motel in Fultondale, Alabama. And that was where I lived the first eight years of my life in the U.S. Wow. So so that's how it happened. And and so they're in the hotel business. Was that a success for them? Yeah, my mom, my mom was pretty amazing. My dad was um, very big hearted and charming and sweet. And my mom was actually like, 
the tough business person in the family. So <laughs> I've learned that. a lot from both of them in many ways. Um, but uh, yeah, it was really successful for, for people who both of them grew up with dirt floors uh, their entire lives until they moved actually to London. Um, so, and there in London, there, there aren't dirt floors, but if there were, I bet they would be, they would have been living there. So, um, yeah, they were successful and I watched them grow, you know, from one to two to three to five to, to, um, other businesses. And I learned a lot, a lot along the way. I would say I've got like a pre MBA. Well, I was going to say, did that make you want to be an entrepreneur or was it, did it turn you off seeing how crazy it was behind the scenes? Oh, it was a total turnoff. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of gross. Um, not gross. <laughs> what was gr- yeah. Not gross in the sense that I'll, I know that what they were doing was always working really hard to give my brother and myself every opportunity in life. But I felt so strongly that they were all we ever talked about. It was mm. always just business, business, business. And I bet you had to do a lot of the work, too. Well, I mean, I was like around it. So and it's like you couldn't go into a restaurant without like my mom and dad talking about like what's the occupancy and how many, (laughs) you know, how many diners do you think they have? and What's the average table check? And it was just like everything was like this like business discussion. Um, So actually, I went when I I wanted to be an artist and I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it at all. What did they think of the fact that you wanted to be an artist when they had worked so hard and taken sort of the deliberate money-making provide for the family path? Well, I mean, they're both, they both loved me very much. Uh, but I definitely think it was hard for them to understand that. And I moved to New York, so came up here to go to college. You went to Columbia. Yep, uh, undergrad and and for business school, which was, was the biggest shock for me personally, um, but changed everything in a way. And uh, I think they... I think, you know, you just want for your, your children, you want them to feel confident and secure and have every potential ability. And I think um, I think at some, they, they were cool enough, despite having this kind of all of that pressure to allow me to, to do that. But it was me who realized, actually, ironically, that um, besides having a baby, which congratulations, Thank I you. think is the most creative thing a person can do in life. I think actually one of the other most creative things a person can do in life is start a business. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it is like a living, breathing work of art. Um, But you can also use it to, you know, make change and impact people and do so much else than just make money. And that actually, I think, was my learning from the two. What did you do out of college from Columbia pre-MBA? I started the digital arm of a media buying agency. And before that, I worked um, actually helping kids and teachers use the new technology called the Internet um, to uh, have a better way to educate themselves because it was the time when a lot of schools were just getting computers and starting to use the Internet. And and it was a nonprofit, and I was really excited about it. But I realized um, there that it was – that I had a bigger – purpose and a kind of broader calling. And did you then go to business school with an idea for Happy Baby Organics or was that something that came out later? So ha- excuse me, Happy Family Organics. Yeah, so it was first called Happy Baby, so you got that right. <laughs> um yeah, I went I didn't go uh with the idea for Happy. I went knowing that I was going to do something and I also went in knowing after watching my parents for so many years, I don't want to say spin their wheels, but 
literally, I didn't want to replay the mom and pop situation. I wanted to have tools in my toolbox so that when I had that idea for something that really spoke to me, I could go big, you know, and do it in a meaningful way. And uh, that was that was the plan. And then I had the the actual idea for the business. Um, yeah, over the my summer internship, it was an idea from a friend who had babies, twins. And so, um, yeah, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine and she, um, you know, it's like the beginning of this like mom guilt conversation and this ideology that I started tapping into and realizing that's not okay. But she was telling me that um, she had twins and she's really smart, really well educated, very similar profile to you. So just imagine hearing yourself, um, hearing your best friend tell you that they're like not good enough because they don't have the time to go to the farmer's market and buy all of their food fresh to make their baby's food homemade because that's what they believe they should do. And I thought, this is really interesting. I mean, this is, I, you know, of course, sad for her, and I'm going to empower her and make her feel better. But I also realized, like, there's an opportunity here to provide something better than what currently exists, make a real difference. And the more I started looking into it, um, I just fell in love with the category of doing something in baby food because for me, that was a place to really make a difference at the start of life. And what was going on um, with the health of the children in our country at the time, and the stats have somewhat gotten better and somehow gotten worse in some of these cases, but it was like, you know, 30% of children born will get adult onset diabetes by the age of 13 if they eat the standard American diet. Um, 30%. Three zero. That was the stat at the time. I don't know if it's gone up. It probably has. Um, 16% of toddlers were obese. This is like a baby under the age of 18 months were obese. The rise in the use of pesticides and toxic chemicals in our environment continued to go up. And there was this other stat about autism, ADHD, asthma, and allergies, which is becoming such an epidemic. And I thought, you know, some of these things require some of the best minds in the world to get together and come up with a solution. But some of, some of it is like diet and exercise and having healthy nutrition from the beginning to create a healthy little growing body. And um, what I found when I started looking at the baby food category was that the category itself was created in the 1930s as a way to create to provide cheap and convenient food for babies in jars. There was no real focus on nutrition or wholeness or freshness, and and certainly not that premium feeling that you want when you're like feeding your baby the first few bites of food in life. I mean, it's amazing, you know, to begin creating their palate for how they'll experience food the rest of their life. But that, that wasn't the focus, obviously, in the 30s. And when I looked into the category, I also realized that these habits that we instill the first couple of years in life, first many years in life, and the brain is is very plastic. So thank goodness for neuroplasticity. But um, but there are things that happen the first three years of life that are really critical for how, as a foundation for health that you'll live. And it was such an opportunity to make a difference. And so um, I, I then became pretty focused on just changing the trajectory of health for children in our country, um, kind of from that day forward. So you found the company in 2003. One of the things that was really important to you, and we've talked about this before, was the idea of accessibility, Yeah, that it couldn't just be this high-end, highbrow 
organic baby food company. It needed to be accessible to all. And also the B Corporation aspect of the business. How, given what you were trying to do at that time, 2003, how did you approach that? Because I, I would imagine from, especially from the cost side of the business, you were probably told by a lot of people, this is a premium product and it has to be priced as a premium product because there's just no way you can do it successfully. Yeah, I was told that quite a bit. And the truth is, um, we as consumers also need to learn and understand what goes into making the products that we want to buy and decide if it's worth it to us and what is worth it to us. Because sometimes the cost that goes into a product are the actual costs. And then we just, you know, you can't expect a business to thrive and grow and expand and do so much in the world and not also accrete value. Um, the question is like, what is the right price? And um, for me, you know, the dream was to democratize access to organic for everybody. And um, initially that meant launching products that were premium. I mean, it was frozen organic baby food, our first line. And there were um, 10 flavors and five boxes and they were, you know, enlightened. It was um, like probably the first time you ever saw quinoa in a baby food, you know, black bean, it was quinoa, probably the and banana. First time, if this is what year was this? 2006. So this is by 2006. So you have the idea you found the business 2003 mm-hmm. and it takes until 2006 to get the first product out the door, basically. Well, um, I did not want to launch again um, in a mom and pop kind of way, uh, which I did actually uh, also ironically. But, um, you know, you don't uh, there are some brands and businesses that you can start out of your bathtub. Like Seth Goldman is a friend of mine and he was one of our first investors and continues to be an investor in my new business and a friend. And he's awesome. And he started Honest Tea um, and he made the first batch that they sold to Whole Foods in his bathtub. You can do that. Uh, with some things, but not with baby food. And so with baby food, we had to we had to find the right partners and the right facilities who, A, were willing to take on the liability because it is a high-risk category, if you think about it, um, and to, to do it in the most professional way with the highest level of QA and standards of quality that, um, that even didn't exist in most categories in food um, because we wanted to do it differently. So it, did, it, take, it took a little while to get it rolling. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have a rich uncle. Um, so there was a lot of bootstrapping. I sold a lot of real estate from the um, Corcoran office at Montague Street. <laughs> that was use, your side hustle? I used their printer a lot for other things, <laughs> you know. That's um, really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think people will respect and appreciate that because a lot of the time, especially now, um, a lot of the startups that are flashy and that we talk about, Truth be told, the people had some sort of wealth. It was coming from somewhere. There was a safety net under them, friends and family-wise. And you were flying, you say, without the the safety net. Was that part of the calculus in your mind? I mean, the fact that you're thinking about your own survival and then the survival of this company, how did that play out? How did that manifest itself? Part of it is like an immigrant thing, I think, um, where it's... It's a survivalist thing that I I think I've just it's like it's in my epigenetically has been turned on for me um, growing up the way I have. But it makes you the way I see it is not having enough forces you to be more creative, to create and to come up with solutions to challenges that others might not 
be pushed towards because they don't have to. And what happens is you end up with a far more beautiful outcome because it's fueled by creativity. And yes, there's pressure and there's fear. I mean, all of us have it um, as entrepreneurs. Having the ability to be creative actually is a gift. And so in a sense, like being bootstrappy is a gift. Resourcefulness. Yeah, because it pushes you that way. I I know people today, I bet you know a lot of people who are, uh, you know, like trust fund kids. And I kind of feel, I feel like they haven't been given the gift of like fear in a way. Because it's a nice thing to be, to feel like the the reward, it tastes so much sweeter when you come from a place of, you know, worrying that you might have nothing. And then also, um, in a sense, you know, if you have nothing to lose, it's not as bad. Why not try? Great point. So what happens 2006, you've got your 10 products out. <laughs> what in the early days was the biggest oh, no moment, and how'd you overcome it? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it was like three weeks after we started selling. So we launched on Mother's Day of 2006, um, which, you know, is, I think it was May 14th. So it was probably like the first week of June, and I'm doing a demo in a Whole Foods, which means I'm standing behind a table, and I'm trying to get moms with babies who might be in the store to stop and talk about our new baby food and taste it. And... um I think I realized like literally three weeks after launching that this was not going to work because number one, we were asking consumers to change their behavior completely by going to the freezer to look for baby food. I mean, I had to stop them when they were going towards the baby food aisle. Number two, how do you know that a woman or a dad just didn't walk in and I missed them because I'm only targeting people who have a baby in their arms. And, um, but you would know if you had something in the aisle on the baby food set. So I immediately realized Frozen was going to be an uphill battle. And to change consumer behavior with something. See, the thing is, Frozen is the closest thing to homemade. It's what we do. Um, you know, as moms, when you're making it fresh, you put it like you make a little ice cube tray full of baby food and you freeze it and then you use what you need as you need it and it's fresh. And um, I'm I'm really excited because Happy has so many innovations in the pipeline. And in a way, uh, you'll see that we're going back to our roots. So that's really cool. Well, the consumer is so much more comfortable with this idea now, but it was really groundbreaking back then. Yeah. And, you know, again, you're asking someone who's used to doing this, which Mm -hmm. which is the sound of opening a jar. She just made the opening a jar thing with her hands. (laughs) You know, um, but you're asking them to go from that to uh, taking this box out of the freezer, getting the tray out, popping out a few cubes, thawing it in your, you know, preferred manner, which might be over the stovetop or the microwave. And then, you know, um, it's just like, I, I realized that to make broad change and to really change the way we ch- feed our children, we have to give parents what they need in a way that they're going to use it and adopt. So what did you do? So we started innovating in the dry set. We were the first um, baby food company in the world to put probiotics um, in in baby food. So we started with our cereals. At the time, they were called Happy Bellies. Um, and that was revolutionary. And that was meant to really help create a stronger immune system from the get-go and mimic, 
in a way, uh, many of the, the gut health benefits as babies were weaning from breast milk um, to solid foods. So I felt really excited about that. And for us, the dream was, look, if we're going to make a product, it has to have a reason. It can't be a me too thing. It had to be an enlightened alternative to something that was, you know, selling on that shelf. Otherwise, don't be there. And, you know, at the time, it was roughly like three and a half percent of the entire market was organic. Um, that's it. And now today it's I, I don't know. The, it's probably in the 30s. Maybe 35 percent of the market is organic, which is really awesome because we're we're still the brand leading that charge. Um, but yeah, so um, it's we we start we pivoted quickly, and there were so many innovations. We were the first organic puff. We created these little freeze dried yogurt snacks called Yogi's. They're my favorite. It was innovation after innovation, but still, you know, the original dream was to create this alternative to the jar. And um, it wasn't until I saw the pouches and we immediately said, we got to get this technology. I, my husband and I were doing a trade show in Australia and we met a woman who was selling um, sauce in a pouch. And around the time I'd seen something else for kids in a pouch, it was an applesauce or something. And um, it began the race to the pouch, and it literally changed everything. It's all pouches now. It's well, there's a lot pouches. of pouches. Yeah, no, it's everything we've bought at this point is in a pouch. Uh, we talk about it. it's a sea of pouches. Um, <laughs> but you know what? The Who pouch, makes the pouch magazine? Uh, the pouch making machines. I should buy that. <laughs> it's complex. I could tell you, but um, you, you, I don't okay. know if you have room for it in your <laughs> New York City apartment. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's. Um, it was a major game changer for the industry because it brought the ability to create, have something enlightened and higher, really much higher quality, um, but in a convenient manner. And that's the thing we all want. Like we all want to do better for our kids, the best for our kids. Um, but in reality, for that to happen, we also have to make it accessible and easy in today's world. So if if, um, if we're going to rely on everyone to, you know, go completely analog again, which I, I would love to do personally, like, you know, live in Vermont and make everything myself homemade and, you know, I don't know, um, farm my own honey and all the things that like you think of in this like <laughs> ideal world. Um, you know, the reality of it is that we need good solutions um, that can empower our families to be healthy forever. And this is the start. How did you evaluate along the way? Because there's so many different directions you could go in at any moment in time. How did you evaluate when it was worth pursuing that direction? At some point, you know, the organization grew to have, um, have you know, some like number crunchers on board. But honestly, I've, I've always been a gut. I go with my gut. Um, if something feels right and it seems like a meaningful opportunity and I have the vision for it in the future, like sometimes... I mean, there are so many market research firms, and you can do so much data collecting to see, um, you know, if something's going to work or not. And I find that to be possibly helpful, but usually ends up just confirming the bias you started with anyway. I look at it and think, like, do I see where this can go long term? Does it have a bigger purpose to play um, in our grand scheme, in the, in the long-term vision of the business? And is it worth investing in now? in terms of planting seeds to see that come to life later. And I, I've, we've seen that play out so many times. In, um, and I would say for us, going, going with our gut is, um, is a driving force. And also 
The other thing that I should always talk about with Happy that you should know and everyone should know is we are her. Like we are you. We are moms. I have a three-year-old. Um, Anne, our new CEO, has a, I think she must, he must be two and um, two and five. Like we all have babies. And a lot of our innovation, it's not just that it comes from the gut. It comes from our own needs as parents. Hear more from Shazi Vizram after a word from our sponsor. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So um, 2017, you have a new CEO. You mentioned her. Yep. What led you to step down as CEO of this company that you created? Number one, I feel like I have unfinished business in the world. Um, And number two, I felt like I feel like, you know, I took a company literally from making recipes in my kitchen um, to being the number one organic baby brand in the country. And I felt like I felt like, you know, check and check. And I felt like. We've also pushed the other big dream that that's really come true is um, is addressing the WIC population. So a lot of listeners might or might not know this, but in the U.S., four million babies born every year are born every year, and of the four, roughly half are born straight into the WIC population, and that means um, moms and dads who literally survive on governmental assistance. And so that means like food stamps. But did you know that in most states, you cannot use food stamps to buy organic baby food? Like, to me, that has always been unacceptable. And um, by the time I stepped down as CEO, we had made a line that is approved for WIC. And we had started the process over many years to lobby state by state to make change. And I can proudly tell you that today, and which has continued under Anne's leadership, we're now in 13 states where we can, where moms can use WIC to buy our products. And they're really, really well-priced. And so I'm really proud that it's not just that we've increased the size of the market in terms of organic. We've taken millions of pounds of pesticides and chemicals out of our babies' bodies, out of the soil, and we continue to make progress there. And I feel really strong about the team, and I feel really good about the um, the possibility for so much growth. So for me, it was kind of like, yeah, my my job is done. What you've done is really incredible. Here's what I want to <laughs> know: listening to you talk about this, the 13 states that now allow for this WIC to cover the cost of the food. What's the holdup with the other states? What's the problem? It's a complex complex situation. In some states, um, there's only there are only certain formats that can be used for WIC. 
And so unless your food is made and sold in that format, it might be, you know, 3.5 ounces instead of 3.75, for instance. Um, then it could be approved for WIC. In some states, there are large corporations who, because this is a subsidized program. So there are large corporations Lobbying. who won the bid to be the brand um, for that state. Um, and again, that might just, that might not, we're not even talking about organic or not organic. We're just talking about like who gets the, the bid. Um, so it is, it is complex and it's a state by state issue. And we are working state by state to make it unanimous. What's been along the way the biggest challenge? I think along the way, the biggest challenge has always been access to capital for us with money, um, you know, growing the business and having a big vision for it, but also starting it in that bootstrappy way, again, without a rich uncle. I wonder, you know, I, sometimes I look back and I wonder, where would we be today if I had had, if I had taken and we got offered all the time, you know, um, private equity and VC wanted to come into happy all the time. You turned it down. I always turned it down. Why? Well, one time I was really lucky that I turned it down, but um, because I probably would have taken it because I was scared and desperate. But thank God um, I didn't. And I one uh, why be- because we were totally almost out of money. Um, the pouches had just taken off, and they were like crazy successful. I mean, you go from struggling for almost five years, four years to sell a few hundred thousand dollars of anything. We launched our pouches, and in Target, in the first week of sales, they were like the number two, four, and six items in the entire baby category in all of Target. But you were running out of money. We were running out of money. basically were out of money. Pretty much always. Um, But that time was especially stressful because so the pouches are taken off. There was very limited production for them in the U.S. And if you wanted to get that production, you had to prepay for the line time. And you and the timelines, the lead times for the packaging and everything else were so long. So you're basically like a bank prepaying for all the stuff. You needed your own manufacturing facility. Well, um, or access to one access and, you know, the ability to get line time, because now we have something special and it's not like we're the only ones who knew it. You know, it was hyper competitive. I mean, the baby space is like the most dog-eat-dog place you could be <laughs> in some ways. And so... Um, you know, I look back on that, and that was funny because we we almost I almost took a deal uh, with a VC because we needed the cash so badly. And then, as luck would have it, um, we were featured in an American Express commercial. And I thought when it was being filmed that it was literally for like a digital like video doc like documentary that they were going to play on their website. That's the way they positioned it to me. Um, and, I, and it seemed like a big, big production when they're filming, but I don't know. I was naive, you know, but like the director was had a film at Sundance and the producer had two. And, <laughs> you know, anyway, um, but it turned out uh, when we filmed it, it was and it was definitely amazing. Uh, but I, I didn't know. But so I took my parents on this trip to Africa, actually, to treat my dad, to show him show him what it would be like to go back and not have dirt floors. And um <laughs> he ended up having a heart attack in the middle of the bush in South Africa on the equivalent of like imagine South Africans Independence Day. So like not, everybody's off. Yeah. And uh 
And we ended up, he ended up having a heart attack. It went misdiagnosed for almost three days. We, our flight back was through Abu Dhabi. We got to Johannesburg. We go to the hospital. They say he has a stomach infection. He's fine to fly. They gave him an IV and said he's fine to fly. Meanwhile, he's been having a heart attack now for like more than 40 hours, which is, you know, my dad was super tough. And we're on this flight, and um, he almost died on the plane. We landed in Abu Dhabi. He came out off the plane on a stretcher straight into the ER of this hospital, literally in the middle of the desert, like, you know, imagine like sand. I have an eight-month-old baby married to my, you know, American guy husband. Everyone's wearing a burqa. And uh, my dad almost died. They saved his life. And... um, we stayed in Abu Dhabi for three weeks. Meanwhile, we're totally running out of money. The term sheets were coming in from the VCs. And I got an email from American Express saying, hey, um, by the way, that video we shot is actually going to be a commercial and we're going to put like $50 million of media behind it. Are you are you ready for this? Can you come in and do audio? And uh, I was like, well, I'm, I'm in Abu Dhabi, but uh, of course I can come do the audio. And like in three weeks, I raised the money we needed from individuals instead of private any kind of private equity, and um, I used I used the commercial and the target data, and we were able to raise the money and stay private. So, I mean, <laughs> first of all, phenomenal. And how's your how did your dad how was he throughout the well ordeal? The good news is that he made it through that. Um, I have since lost him, but he, and he was my best friend. But um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I, I, me too. But he was cool and charming and a just incredible human. And uh, he must have been so proud when you raised the money in the end. He was proud every second. But one thing I learned is if you go through something so painful, if you can turn it into something beautiful, then it's a good. It's at least makes the pain and the challenge so worth it. And that's the Happy Family Children's Village. In Tanzania. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he would be so proud. As you said, he was really proud every single day. Advice. What's the worst advice you received along the way? <laughs> well, I was thinking about this because I know it's your big thing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've gotten a lot of advice and I'm kind of headstrong. So I, I'm not the person who typically always takes advice. Um but I remember one woman in the very early days very clearly telling me that this business was not going to work. It's a pipe dream. I don't understand the retail landscape. I don't understand grocery. It's going to cost way more than I think. And that it was going to put me at risk and that I was literally going to go bankrupt and that I just should not move forward. And that, and she she meant it. She was She was saying it from, you know, place of concern. How did you take that? I mean, in that one, I used it as fuel. And I I saved the email. I have a bunch of emails from all the naysayers. And for many years, I just use them as fuel. And now I say uh, that dessert at the White House tastes really good. (laughs) I don't know if she's tasted that, but I have. Well, that's with President Obama. You have been referred to by him not only as an outstanding businesswoman, but also a leader that all of us can emulate. You have that. Wow. I have his quote about oh, you. That's a good one. Uh, have you spoken to this this person since that email? I have not. I have not. Do you know where she is right now? Do you follow her in any way? As my dad would say in his really awesome voice, 
I don't know and I don't want to know. <laughs> Shazi Fisrab, thank you so much for joining us. It is so my pleasure. So fun to be here. Love being here. Thank you. And shout out to Billy Mann for putting us together in the first Billy Mann. place. Billy Mann. The man. The man. Thank you. Okay, it's the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's entrepreneur is Kelly Shotton. She is the CEO and co-founder of Kari Foods. She was nominated by listener Tatiana Klein. Here's Kelly to tell you more. Hi, my name is Kelly Shotton, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Kari Foods. Kari Foods is a plant-based salad dressing and sauce business that I launched with my sister in October 2018. Our biggest hurdle since launching Kari has been getting into multi-store grocery chains. We don't have a large corporate backer such as Kraft or Hormel, and we don't use a national distributor, making the entire process harder. What we chose to do instead is be persistent and continue to pitch our target stores, as well as build demand through our online business, focusing on key markets such as LA, San Diego, and New York. With this persistence and growing demand, we've been able to get into some of our top tier stores, including Erewhon Market in LA and Brooklyn Fair in New York. Congratulations, Kelly. I wish you continued success and thanks Tatiana for the nomination. Remember listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Kelly. Also, of course, if you or someone you know wants to be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send me career questions there, ideas, recommendations. We love it all. Finally, a shout out to the team that makes this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to ABC Audio. I'll see all of you here next week.